All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 20 once again, and we're going to pick it up. Uh, I'm going to pick it back up in verse 24. I covered it last time, but I just kind of want to get a running start at what Paul says here before he addresses the elders. You know, Paul says here in verse 24, he says, but none of these things, of course, he's talking about the prophecies that have been given concerning him going to Jerusalem. He was going to be bound, imprisoned, and the Holy Spirit, he said, was witnessing in every city, which is interesting to me, because how does the Holy Spirit do that? He does it through people. You know, I was blessed here, it wasn't, was it last Sunday or a couple Sundays ago when Shirley, you know, she, she said, hey, she goes, I really feel the, the Holy Spirit telling me, you know, and we need to make time for stuff like that. That's that's important. You know, Paul said, how is it, brother, when you come together? All, everybody has a psalm. Everyone has a teaching. Let all things be done decently in order, but let all things be done. And so it's important that we understand it because that's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And he does it through people, his people. So the Holy Spirit was witnessing in every city that Paul was going to go to Jerusalem and that it wasn't going to fare well for him. He was going to wind up in prison. He was going to wind up bound and maybe even worse. But he said, none of those things in verse 24, none of them moved me. Because the, you know, the elders, they didn't want to see him go. They were trying to talk him out of it. Paul was, actually got a little irritated about it. He says, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And I went into quite an in-depth commentary on the issue of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one thing I want to add to that, for those who maybe missed the last broadcast, I was talking with a young man, a fairly young guy. Well, he's almost my age, so. <laughs> so in my humble opinion, he's a young man. So I was talking with him here recently, just a few days and we were talking about the issue of just victory in Jesus. And he goes to a, a more, another denomination, but a more formal uh, liturgical type church, if you understand what I'm saying. And he was talking about, his exact words to me was, I, sometimes I don't feel like a Christian. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel worthy of salvation. And I said, and I started laughing, you know, I, I really did, because I said, brother, you aren't worthy. You ought to feel like that. You're not. But you are, if you've put your faith in Christ. It doesn't matter what you feel like. We don't walk by feelings, we walk by faith. And so it, that beginning of that conversation kind of took us over into the issue of victory. Because we sing the song, the hymn, we all know it, you know, victory in Jesus, my Savior. For... And that's the truth. But yet, if we don't understand how that occurs, so often we see people, uh, another person told me here recently, uh, whether it was today or, or maybe a little while back, but they were talking about in, in their particular fellowship that when the altar call is given every Sunday, <laughs> that, the, that the altar is lined, but almost always with the same people. And I said, you know, I've seen this, you know, haven't seen it in this church, but I've seen it in many other churches where this tends to be the case, where people, 
uh, feel like they have to reestablish their salvation over and over and over again. Because why? They keep falling into that same sin cycle over and over again. In the gospel, which we know is the good news, right? It's good news. The gospel is good news. And the good news is that Jesus has paid it all for every sin, past, present, and future. Took care of it. It's gone. Never to be talked about or remembered again. So often people say, well, I'll go to the Lord and say, oh, Lord, I failed you again. And he's going to say, what are you talking about? Because it's that imputation, and I, and I want to say this, I want to make sure you get this before we move on. Your victory in Jesus over anything, whether it's sin or something that you're just battling, whatever it might be, your victory in Jesus is through a vicarious life. Once you understand that Jesus lived that perfect life for you, once you get that, and that he has imputed the results of that perfect life to you by faith alone, he's given it to you. Jesus lived for 33 years, absolutely perfect, sinless life. And the Bible says that because he did that, he was righteous. So often we think of righteousness, we sang the song, righteousness, it's what I need. Well, absolutely it's what you need. Because without perfect righteousness, no one will see God. But we can't obtain that by ourselves. It's impossible. The righteousness of man is like, what, filthy rags. How do we obtain it? We obtain it vicariously through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus kept the law perfectly, all 613 of them. He kept them perfectly his whole life. He was righteous, because that's what righteousness is, is keeping the law. Then he went to the, de to the cross, of course, and paid the price for our redemption. He bought you at that particular moment, which is why Paul says, you're not your own, brethren. You were bought with a price. So there was a double imputation that happened on the cross. Jesus took upon him our sin. Our sins were imputed to him, but at that same time, his righteousness, his perfect life was imputed to you. Therein lies your victory. You have victory. I had a guy ask me one time, and he was dead serious when he heard me talk about the issue of Christian perfection, because in this denomination, so many other, the quote-unquote holiness foundational ministries, you know, it was a taught doctrine at one time that we could be flawless in Christ. They called it Christian perfection, entire sanctification. They had a lot of words for it. But this guy asked me, he says, so you think you're perfect? I said, well, I don't think I'm perfect. I am perfect. And he says, well, that's arrogant. I said, no, 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 you misunderstand. See, you think perfection in a theological sense, you, what you hear is flawless. And if you think I'm flawless, you need to talk to my wife and she will set you straight. I'm not flawless. Absolutely not. But in Christ, I am perfect. And I'm as holy and I'm as righteous as I can possibly be. And therefore I am worthy because Jesus has died for me. He lived for me. He rose from the dead for me and for you. And so I have victory in the Lord. Do I still struggle with things? I, I wished I could tell you that I did. But i got to be honest with you. I embrace my imperfections. I'm not talking about blatant sin. If a man can wallow in sin and have the Spirit of Christ in him, I challenge that he has the Spirit of Christ in him. You know, to, to, to wallow in it and to justify it. Now, struggling with it is a whole other issue. I had somebody ask me today, 
Is it possible for a gay person to be saved? I said, well, absolutely. And he said, well, how can you say that? I said, what's it take to be saved? Well, you got to believe. I said, Duh. You got to believe. I said, the question is, is can a Christian sin? And the answer to that is, absolutely. I can vouch for that. You can vouch for that. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, I said, no, see, you want to take homosexuality and you want to make it the worst thing in the world. You want to make that the pinnacle of, of the epitome of evil. But listen, when it comes to sexual sin, all that falls under one word, fornication, in the Bible. It's an umbrella term. It comes from the word porneo in the Greek. And it means anything outside of what God would have for you. The fact is many people will justify those things. You go back and look at Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, 19, Paul gives the works of the flesh, which are these, and he gives a nice long list of sin. And he says, I've told you before, brethren, I even tell you now, weeping, that those who continue in such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And what does that tell me? That tells me that a person, regardless of the sin that they're in, if you are struggling with it, well, that's a good thing. That means the Spirit of God's in you. You're struggling with it. You will have victory if you understand. But if you are wallowing in it and you say it is okay, God even blesses it, that somehow the Lord doesn't care, then you have missed the gospel. That's not the gospel. You know, we were dead in sin. How shall you who were dead in sin live any longer there in it, Paul says? Shall we sin because grace abounds? God forbid. How should we do that? So when a person is not struggling, when a person has simply given themselves over to, I don't care what kind of lascivious life it's style it is, it's irrelevant to me. I asked this kid, I said, well, can a, what about a guy who's cheating on his wife? Is that, is that not sin? Well, sure it is. Can a, can a guy do that? And still, I said, listen, we can have all kinds of people within the body of Christ. But you take a person who is justifying sin in his life, what he's not qualified for is ministry. What he's not qualified for is doing anything in a ministry form. What he needs to do is set and listen to the Word of God until he is able to have victory in that particular part of his life. Then he's suited for the kingdom of God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has lived for you perfectly, imputed that to you by faith alone. He has paid the price for us on Calvary, and he has forgiven all sin, past, present, and future. And that's a great thing. What a beautiful thing that is, because we have victory in that. So often we have no victory because we simply don't realize what's already been done. And it's been done. Jesus has already taken care of it. Once again, when I said I embrace my, my idiosyncrasies or my flaws, I do. I, there's certain things. I, you know, I'm turning 59 this year. I'm real close to that 60 mark. I know. I know. And I don't really feel it, to be honest with you. I don't, whether it's, I don't really feel it until I look in the mirror and I go, yeah, whatever. You know. But there's certain things about my personality that are never going to change. Now is a little late in life to be worrying about it, you know. And I've always been one of those type of guys, you know. And I, I realized this. And I had a man tell me this one time when I was on radio. He goes, you know, you're the type of guy that people either love or they hate. He said, there's really no place in the middle for you. 
I said, well, I'm with good company because that's pretty much what Jesus was like. They either loved him, he even told his disciples, you know, man, take a choice, buddy. You, know, <laughs> you either for me or against me. But I'm okay with that. I mean, once again, I, I, I just embrace all that Jesus has done for me. I, I'm certainly not anything by myself or of myself, but anything good that's ever come out of my life has been because of Jesus Christ. It's been because of the Holy Spirit, but, this is, but you can say the same thing. You can say the same thing because God's no respecter of persons. So the gospel, this is what Paul was concerned about. And so when he called the elders down, he even began to talk about that, as we just read in 24. He said he had received it of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was to testify the gospel of Jesus. So Paul was concerned about that, and so he goes on to verse 25, and he says, and now behold, I know that you all, so Paul was Southerner, you all, nobody got that. I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Paul really believed this. When he told the elders that they weren't going to see him anymore, I, I'm sure that he really believed that this was the case. However, some of the early church historians and, uh, say that Paul eventually made it back to Ephesus for a short time. And um, because when you get to the book, when we get, finally get to the end of the book of Acts, you know, the, Luke kind of leaves us with Paul still being jailed. I mean, he's living in his own house, but he's under house arrest, and he's still there in Rome. But according to church history, what we know is, is secular history also, is that when Paul first went to Rome, that when he first encountered with Nero, who was the Caesar at that time, that Caesar actually acquitted Paul the first time he was there. He was acquitted, so he was released. Historians tell us that it was at that time that Paul evidently made it back to Ephesus for a short period of time. So he did see those guys. But during that time, during that time, Nero kind of went through a change. And it's interesting. Because when you read secular history and you, and you look at Caesar Nero, when he first starts out as the, you know, the emperor of Rome, he's not a bad guy. He actually does a lot of good things does a lot of creative things for, for the people. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told his disciples that they would stand before magistrates and before kings and that they were not to take any thought beforehand of what they were going to say for the Holy Ghost would give them what to say in that hour. You remember that, right? Paul took this very literally. If you remember right, when Paul was standing before Agrippa, he began to witness to him to the point where Agrippa says, thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul said, I would altogether that I could persuade you. Why? Because think of the influence. I, I do believe Paul it had to be going through his mind. Man, if I could influence this guy, this king, if, if we could get this man converted, Lord, you know, what an influence this guy could have for the positive preaching of the gospel. So Paul did this in front of everybody. Anytime he got called up in front of chiefs or anything, he always preached the gospel. It was foremost, it was paramount in his ministry. So I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to say that when he stood before Nero, that Paul preached the gospel. 
But church historians tell us that Nero rejected the gospel. And so even though Paul had been released, by the time he was released, he makes it back to Ephesus for a short period. But during that time, Nero goes through a very strange change in his life. He goes through such a change that when they write about him, it was, today we would call it a mental disorder. Christians would call it possession. Matter of fact, to the point, Nero became so evil that they gave him the moniker of the beast. They called him the beast. This is a guy who turned on Christianity so much, he would have Christians arrested, he would have them crucified, he would line his yard with the crucifixes and set them on fire, and he would ride his chariot up and down in the light of the fires of Christians burning on crosses. True. That's how bad he got. It was at that particular time that he calls for Paul to come back to stand before him. And of course, at that particular time, forthwith, Paul is beheaded at that particular time. But all indications is, is that he did, for the most part, probably make it back to Ephesus, even though at this particular time, he's telling these guys that he's, they're not going to see him anymore. But church history tells us that he probably did at least for a short period of time before he wound up going home to be with the Lord. So, but Nero rejecting the gospel, I mean, I've seen this happen, where people who are so antagonistic against the gospel that they open themselves up for a lot of evil influence. And it's sad when you see that. And, um, you know, we hope for the other, but for Nero, uh, it didn't end well. And, of course, he became a scourge on Christianity, I mean, until his death. Look at verse 26. Wherefore, he says, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul was a straight shooter when it came to the gospel. Like I said, it was paramount to his purpose in life and in his ministry. Paul never lost an opportunity to share the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, to declare not only the truth, but the whole counsel. If you're taking note, you need to make note of that. The whole counsel of God. These men that he's speaking to, he's been there for three years. He's invested his time, not only showing them, as he's already said and we read, how to do it, but he's taught them, not only publicly, he said, but from house to house. And he's taken them through the scriptures, giving to them the full counsel, the whole counsel of God. In my humble opinion, any pastor who does not systematically take their church through the entire word of God, if it's possible in his lifetime, could never stand before the Lord and make the same statement that Paul's making here. That I have not shunned to declare unto you the full counsel of God. The church is in dire need of teaching. Systematic theology is something that has went out the window. And it's been replaced with opinions on 
sociological issues of the day. You know, you'll hear sermon after sermons from, from many pastors, you know, on what's going on with Black Lives Matter, or what's going on with this, and what's going on with that. And I'm not saying that it's not necessary to talk about those things, but they should be talked about in context of where you're teaching through at the Scripture. That's why expository, and we, and we dealt with this early on in the study when I showed you the difference between exegetical and eisegetical teaching. The reason exegetical is so better and so much more spiritual and so much more nourishing in a spiritual sense is because regardless of what's happening in the church, what's ever happening in your life, you'll find that wherever we happen to be at at that given moment is right where we need to be. It speaks to us. The Lord talks to us that way. So few of us, as we're going to see in, in the latter chapters, you know, Paul mentions having a trance, going into the trance when the Lord begins to speak to him. I've never had a trance. The only dreams I ever had, I think, were induced by too much pizza. I'm not sure that they had any spiritual... I have nothing against those things. I think that, you know, the Bible speaks of those things. Uh, you know, but for me, the Lord speaks to me through his word. And that's good enough for me. I'm not against it. If the Lord ever wanted to give me a trance or a dream that was not induced by pizza that had some spiritual meaning to it, I, I'm open to it, you know. But, uh, yeah, for the most part, I'm, I'm good with just the word of God. It speaks to me fine. So in verse 28, he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, and to all, if you're taking it, mark the word all there, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. To what? To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Some of your Bibles might say with the blood of his own son. Anybody's Bible say that? No? Everybody says what mine does? Some of your Bibles, if you're listening out there in radio, you know, some of your Bibles say with the blood of his own son. Sounds like a minor change, but this is what we call a deity verse. This makes Jesus God when he says God purchased with his own blood. We know who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ. But I want to focus on what Paul says first because Paul's actually driving home my last point. You know, he gives these elders charge that they are to feed the church of God. It is increasingly difficult today anyway, to find pastors who are genuinely feeding the flock of God. It's not because people are not hungry for the Word of God. I don't believe that for a moment. It's because, really, we have pastors behind pulpits who are just lazy. They're, they're, they're better suited for giving... What's the word I'm looking for? Um... Like I said, opinions. I mean, about worldly things or videos or movies or whatever the case may be, but nothing from the Scriptures, the Word of God. It's getting harder and harder to find men who are dedicated to that. Thus, these type of guys know enough to be dangerous, to be honest. They know enough to get a paycheck. And the result is that the people of the church are starving. Quite frankly, it's beyond me why pastors don't understand the necessity 
to feed the flock and to take people through the scriptures. I don't get why they don't get that. I think, as I had one pastor tell me years ago, who was sitting in my office, I tried that, Doug. He used to listen to me on radio all the time. He, he came in, he pastored one of the largest Pentecostal churches in that town. And he had started listening to me and, and listened to me for years and decided he wanted to come over and meet me. So he came over, and as we were having this discussion, I encouraged him. I said, so how are, where are you teaching through on the screen? Well, you know, we're, I'm doing a series on whatever. And I said, but where are you teaching on Wednesday night? How are, are you taking your church through the Bible? Oh, I tried that one time. You tried it? What, it didn't work? Because that's what you're implying. Oh, I tried it, but the people didn't like it. Wow, really? Seriously? I said, you know what the strange thing is? You told me you listen to my show every day. You told me that, Pastor. You listen to me every day. And every day I'm on the radio taking you through the Bible. You listen because it's the Word of God. It's good enough for you. But it isn't good enough for your congregation. That's crazy. He had a heart for it. He just didn't want to put the time in that it takes to take people through the Scriptures. And that's sad. Why? Because they were willing. They were willing to take less. And that's sad. You know the thing about a starving animal, right? Do you realize if an animal's starving, if it's starving, it'll eat anything? You take an animal past that point where it normally feeds on whatever, if it normally feeds on grass, if it normally feeds... I watched a video where they showed a deer. And we know deers are herbivores. They eat corn, they eat grass, they eat whatever. Saw the strangest video of one eating a bird. Eating a bird. Why? It was starving. When an animal starves, it'll eat anything. And you know what? When sheep starve, they'll eat anything. And when you have people in the body of Christ who are the sheep, the people of God, when they're starving to death, they will fall for anything. They'll get it where they think they they'll, they'll, they'll eat anything. It's important that pastors understand that the, 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 the growth of a church is dependent upon the Word of God. That the stability of a church is dependent upon the Word of God. That the spirituality of a church is dependent upon the Word of God. That's why Paul tells us, except the Lord build the house, those that labor do it in vain. But yet it's getting increasingly hard to find anybody who is dedicated to it. We'd rather have a piece of it than we would the whole thing. And that's sad. Look at verse 29. He says, for I, for I know this. I know this. That after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch. And remember, he's talking to elders. He's talking to pastors. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Think about that for a moment. For three years, Paul says, 
I didn't cease. I warned with tears night and day. He warned them because he knew that grievous wolves would come in, men who were simply seeking their own elevation, speaking perverse things in order to draw disciples to themselves. He said they won't spare the flock. What's he mean by that? What he means by that is that these men don't have, they have not the good of the whole flock in mind. They don't care. They only want a piece of it, you see. That's all they want. They just want a piece of it. They want a handful of men that will follow them. You understand what I'm saying? The rest of the church they don't care about, even though their actions might split that church or fracture it in many different directions. That doesn't really occur to them. They don't care. They're just worried about their little piece of it. Paul warned them night and day about those type of men. Be careful, he said. For three years, Paul taught them with tears. Paul had a shepherd's heart, which is why he wanted to feed the flock of God and to nurture them, that they might not be, or that they might become strong in the faith and in doctrine, so that they would understand the difference. And he spent three years doing it. Even as he was preparing to leave, Paul knew what was going to happen. He knew it. I remember when I retired from Calvary Chapel. I spent a year with the pastor there that I was appointing to be pastor. I spent a whole year with him every day. And I told him, I said, let me tell you, as I got closer and closer to my departure, I said, let me tell you what's going to happen. Every person I've ever ticked off in 20 years, and let me tell you, it's been a lot of people, not because I wanted to, but because some people have a hard time with the Bible. They just don't like the way Doug Copen teaches it, you see. Or they didn't like my hair or my beard or whatever it was, or my suit or whatever. Here's what's going to happen. These people are going to come back because I'm gone. And they're going to come in and they're going to want to influence you, brother. And they're going to want to take this church, which the Lord has established. He's given you the biggest voice in this town. We had our own radio station pumping 24-7, nothing but the Word of God. And they're going to want to steer that in another direction. Don't you let them. Don't you let them. Stay the course. Teach the Word. Preach it in season, out of season. I told him every day, this is going to happen. After I'm gone, you watch. It wasn't weeks, and they were back. And he made the mistake of doing exactly what I told him not to do. And this is why Paul's telling these guys. He knew what was going to happen. Paul said, I know that when I'm gone. Why? Those wolves stay away when you have a man like Paul at the pulpit. Why? Because he knows the word. They have no say-so when there's a man who knows the word. When you know the word, you, you understand those crazy doctrines. You don't want no part of it. But boy, when those guys are gone, the wolves will come in. Paul's saying, look, they won't spare the flock. They'll split it. They'll devour it. For what? To draw a few disciples after themselves. That's sad. Sad. I saw it happen one time, and I... I told the guy when he was leaving, I said, brother, I'll give you six months. That's how long it lasted, six months. Why? Because it wasn't done the way God would have you to do that. There's a right way to grow a church. There's a right way to expand. And there's a wrong way, you know? 
We have to look at the flock as a whole. We're all part of it. How's it going to affect us? This is what Paul was concerned with here. So he gets ready. And he's getting ready to leave. And so he moves on. Verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. I love that. Because the word of grace always does what? It builds you up. Man, when you really get the, the, the grace of God, God's riches at Christ's expense, man, we are built up in the Lord. That's called edification. I love that. That's why we need the gospel of grace. It will build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And I have coveted, he said, no man's silver or gold or apparel. Paul was a man who sought fruit, not profit. He held nothing back that was beneficial to these people. At the same time, though, he says he coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. You got to love Paul. This is a guy who was a worker. Paul was a man who, when people wanted to help in his ministry, he allowed it. Because he knew that that would be fruit for them. But he never solicited it, except for other people, as he did for the people in Jerusalem when he was taken up an offering. It wasn't for himself, it was for them. Look what he goes on to say. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. Paul reminds the elders here that he took nothing in return for the ministry and that his own hands had worked to supply his needs, and not only his, but those that ministered with him. <laughs> Paul earned his living. Now Paul does say, and I don't want you to get the wrong impression of him, Paul said the Lord has ordained that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But Paul had not taken a vow of poverty, as some people have said that he did. What Paul was was totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. And so he made the gospel of no charge. I always admired that about him. I wanted to model my own ministry that way. I wanted to just let the Lord do it, you see. Let God do it. Where God guides, God provides. When people are benefited from your ministry, they will give to it. You don't have to ask them to do it. They'll do it. And Paul was like that. He said, you've seen that I've worked with my own hands, ministered to not only to my needs but to those who were with me. One of the greatest problems, I think, within organized denominational churches is that they lavish unrealistic salaries upon pastors disproportionate to the amount of work that they actually do. You know, make no mistake, a workman is worthy of his hire, the Bible says. I would emphasize it says a workman. Now before I was in the pastorate, my first and second, I didn't know anything about drywall. I knew nothing about tiling. 
I knew nothing about papering a wall. I knew very little about painting. Well, I knew a little bit about painting. By the time I retired, I was a pretty fair master class tiler. Still ain't very good at drywall, but I can hang it and I can paint it. I ain't too bad at roofing after I get past the whole fear of heights thing. You know, but the Lord helped me with that. But I learned all those things within the body of Christ. Why? Had to be done. I remember when we got into the new building, and it was huge. Our sanctuary was 85 feet long. I don't know, like 50 feet wide, something like that. It was big. It had these two great big things that ran down each side, and they were wide. And I had it in my bright eye. I said, oh, that would look great if it was stomped. You know what stomping is, right? That would look great stomped. And he said, yeah, who knows how to do it? I don't know, but I can look it up. And for days I was down there doing this. You know, <laughs> I learned how to do it. You know, you do it because it needs to be done. And, 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 you know, Paul was like that. He was like that. But the sheep so often are willing to do that. I mean, to, to, I don't know. But it's, it's a shame when you see it. I mean, once again, we've created a, a livish life. When you look at some of these guys, and I'm talking about, you look at some of these guys and the way they live. They live way above their congregation. It's one thing I always loved about Pastor Chuck. I mean, he had a church, there was 40,000 people that went through that church in a week. 40,000. That's bigger than this town. His income was $30,000 a year. That was it. And he tithed 50% of that back to the church. Why? Because he worked. I mean, he had, a, he, he had other means of income. I mean, and I, I remember going out to our Bible college up there at Marietta, and I was there for a pastor's conference. And they still weren't done excavating certain parts of it. And there was somebody, I here was a big, you know what a D9 is? Big dozer? Big D9, it was a huge dozer. And I look up and here, I said, who's? And here's Pastor Chuck. I don't know how old he was, but he was an old man. And he had a grin from ear to ear, man. And he was just driving that thing. He was pushing dirt all over the place, you know. He was working. And here, he, you know, he'd been the pastor there for years and years and years and years and years. But he worked, you know. And he didn't begrudge it to anybody. He loved doing it. He loved doing it. Paul said, I've ministered. Not only to, unto my own necessities with my own hands, but unto them that were with me. There's too many, too many guys in the pulpit today fleecing the flock, not feeding the flock. You know? And that's too bad. But we as the church sometimes create that problem. We create it. We allow it to happen. And it shouldn't, but it does. And when you look at some of the crazy doctrines, I understand it. I mean, I know where it comes from. You know, you've got guys out there, man, who preach the prosperity gospel, you know, that God wants everybody rich and, you know, just... And so they... They wind up fleecing the flock, you know. They, but what does Paul say? Look at verse 35. He says, I have showed you all things 
how that's so laboring. You ought to support. Now remember, he's talking to elders who also is the same requirement, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, the same requirement as pastors. So they're, they're pastors, elders, okay? He said, I've showed you all things that how by laboring you ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So many who are in the ministry today have not come to serve, but they have come to be served. And that just seems to be their mindset. They won't lift a finger to do anything. Why? They're too good. Or maybe somewhere in their seminary, maybe one of their professors taught them that crazy, you know, ridiculousness. Why? Because their professor never pastored a church. You do realize that, right? A lot of these guys who teach at seminaries never actually did the job. They just teach it. There's an old adage that those that can do and those that can't teach, and no offense to my wife who was a 30-year teacher, she can and she did. But so often that is the case. It's not always the case. There have been some great professors. Do not get me wrong. I've got nothing against all seminaries, just a lot of them, because so many of them have left the Word of God, and they just, it's just ridiculousness. But they're more worried about fleecing the flock rather than feeding the flock, as I said. And they have forgotten the basic precept of the Lord, this basic spiritual principle that it's better to give than to receive. I remember Pastor Chuck telling a story about an article that he read in Christianity Today. I don't know how many years ago this has been, but I thought it was interesting. One of my pet peeves, and I noticed it tonight when I was leading worship, that a song that is older than the hills, even down at the bottom of it. And it's written by an old Calvary Chapel pastor, John Wimber, who started the, the vineyard, but he actually pastored Calvary Chapel before he was ever in vineyard. But down at the bottom, it says CCLI license or whatever it is, you know. In the article, the woman, this woman who was a choir director at her small, small church wanted to take a few choruses, you see, and just put them on paper and pass them out to the, to the choir, you know, because they really couldn't. They were a small church. They couldn't afford anything else. So she was going to do this. But being a good steward that she was, she actually wrote to the publishing companies asking for permission to do it. Every one of those publishing companies sent her back asking for royalties, except one. That publishing company was Maranatha Music. I say that with a little bit of pride because Maranatha came out of Calvary Chapel. But their philosophy was, they told her, this was in Christianity Today, they told her, absolutely, make copies as much as you want because it's our delight to give and not just to receive. Maranatha Music was one of those type of companies that if you couldn't afford a record, all you had to do was write them a letter and say, where can I get one of these at? They'd send it to you for free. I remember in the early years of Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck, we gave away more thousands and thousands of tapes of teachings. Oh, there was always a suggested offering, but it wasn't mandatory, you see. Why? It's more blessed to give than to receive, especially in ministry. Now, I've been on radio for a long time. 
And I remember listening to so many others. And so often, with not all of them, but with a lot of them, you, you hear the pleas, you know, for contributions. And some of those guys are worse than others. You know, there was years back when I, you know, one, one guy was on there talking about, oh, you know, if we might not be here next week because, you know, the budget's down and the money hasn't come in so prayerfully, you know, oh, you know, they're, they're going to pull the plug, you see, if you don't write a check. Some of you might be too young for to remember this one, but this one always cracked me up. And some of you listening by radio might not think it's funny, but I thought it was hilarious. But I have a sick sense of humor, so, you know, bear with me. The Lord is one of my idiosyncrasies that I have embraced, and uh, God loves me anyway and still uses me, so take it up with him. But I think we all know who Oral Roberts is, right? I remember years ago. Oral Roberts had mishandled all the money, of course, that he fleeced from the flocks that came into him. Because he started a medical school and everything. I mean, he, he had all kinds of stuff. You know, Oral Roberts, one of the early faith prosperity teachers. But he had totally mishandled it to the tune of $8 million. And the bank was wanting their money. <laughs> so Oral comes up with a great idea. Oral gets on the radio and has a huge audience. And he says, well, God said he's going to kill me. He didn't put it that way. That's my words. What he said was, the Lord's going to take me home if you don't give $8 million. <laughs> You're laughing. I, you know. But that's basically what he said. Yeah, you know, and, Listen, I would have said bye. <laughs> bye. If God's calling you home, brother, you might as well go. Why would you want to stay? If the Lord said, Doug, I'm calling you home, I'm going, let's do it now. <laughs> you know, I love my wife, but you know what? You'll press on. The Lord will take care of you. I guarantee it. But yeah, God's going to kill me if you don't give me $8 million. And you know what? There was some poor soul down in Florida. Some poor, extremely rich, <laughs> deceived, you know, deceived, who opened his checkbook and wrote a check for $8 million. Now, I'm sure he claimed the glory of God for that. Praise the Lord, I'm sure he said. God has provided. And, uh, and I guess you can claim that. I wouldn't claim it because it gives God more glory when you don't make the need known but to him, you see. And then God comes in and moves by the Holy Spirit through his people and somebody says, you know what, there's a need over here and the Lord's telling me that gives God the glory. Or when it's just out of the blue and there is an absolute need, maybe it is a large sum of money. I don't have a problem with that. We had ministries that needed large sums of money. But there was always that phone call that came out of nowhere going, hey, the Lord told me to give you a call. I loved standing up at the pulpit and saying, let me tell you what the Lord did. Because I could honestly say it. I hadn't mentioned it to anybody. I love it when God guides, God provides. I love that. But God blesses us, and how does he bless? Well, he does bless through his people. So often, you know, within the body of Christ, we can get into an argument or debate, if you will, about whether tithing is even a New Testament doctrine. I'm good with that debate. That's fine. Debate it. One thing that cannot be debated is that people who are genuinely 
servants of the Lord are givers. That can't be debated. Because it's a natural state for a Christian. God blesses us, not so that it flows to us, but so that it flows through us. And thus we become a conduit for blessing to everybody around us, not just to the church, but to those outside of it. And those things are good when they're done right, when they're done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do it the other way, but I don't think that you can give God total credit for it when you made something happen, when you did it yourself. When the Lord's doing it, oh, yeah, you know, praise the Lord. It's so cool to watch him do it, too. Dave actually told a story this morning, which I thought was pretty cool. He said he had one of his friends was talking about some ministry they were doing. He goes, I, I'm not worried about if God's going to pay for it. I'm just kind of curious to know how he's going to do it. Now, I've been there. You know, I thought, well, absolutely. I'm not worried that the Lord's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it. If it's him, he's going to. And you can always bank on it. If it's God, you can't withstand it. If it's of men, it'll come to nothing. But if it's of God, you can't withstand it. God will supply, God will guide. But it is cool to watch him do it because sometimes he does it through the strangest ways and uh, in ways that I wouldn't even thought of. But let's go ahead and finish this up. Verse 36, and when he had thus spoken, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him unto the ship. And so Paul ends his exhortation to these guys by kneeling down and praying with them. Paul genuinely was concerned about them. He loved them. Been with them for three years. And when you've been, and you've been not only with somebody, but you've been through the word with somebody, and you be you build that relationship. It becomes more, it's more family than it is anything. And you kind of, I understand his feeling. Read ahead. Because he's going back to Jerusalem. He's going to be taking the offering. And when he gets there, you're going to see that everything the Holy Spirit warned him about happens. And then some. Father, we love you. Lord, help us to maintain an attitude of servitude, Lord, as Paul the Apostle did. Even though it was lawful for him, Lord, to take whatever liberty that he wanted as the other apostles did, yet he didn't do it, that he might make the gospel of no charge. But yet, Lord Father, you supplied his ministry in so many ways, not only by working with his own hands, but you did it through people. Lord, Father, help us to be the type of people who are just simply led by your Spirit. That we might incorporate the philosophy that Jesus taught, Lord, Father, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We love blessing people, Lord. And we thank you when we're able to do it. Because it's only by your Spirit that we even have the mind to do it and the heart to do it. We ask that you would bless your people, Lord, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.